All right, this is Stephen Waggis back with LABI, and I am here live in person joined by Garrett Graves. Um, not only is he uh, one of Louisiana's hardworking members of Congress, he also is my member of Congress. Yes, I voted for Congressman Garrett Graves and proudly did so, as did my wife. But um, not only is Garrett does a fantastic job, one of the hardest working guys you will ever be around, but he's also a good friend. I've, I've known him for a long time, knew him in college, worked with him as a young staffer on the Hill, had the privilege of working with him in the state. Um, you won't find a more dedicated, hardworking public servant out there who, who day in, day out, does everything that um, he can to try to make Louisiana reach his potential. And so for that, I want to thank you. And for that, I want to thank you for being here today. So welcome, uh, Congressman Garrett Graves. Hey, thank you. And with that kind of introduction, I think I'd rather just shut it down here before I, before <laughs> yeah, I screwed we, up. <laughs> we have hit the high water mark of this whole interview right now. Um, but no, let, let's get right to it. Um, since since the day I've known you, um, we're working on the Hill for Billy Tozan or, or back in the day at the state level, you've always kind of had this this core message of, look, Louisiana is the energy leader in the country, proudly so. But Louisiana also is taking tremendous steps, you know, to, to make strong environmental improvements as well. We've got a coastal restoration plan on you. You are a major force of putting that plan together, using science to get that done. So you've always been a strong voice on we can be both an energy provider, energy leader, and show the world how to also at that point do the major restoration project on our coast our coastline. So walk through what your focus is right now, because in D.C., we see so much discussion about energy, which seems to be going in the other direction and, and almost being ashamed of American energy. Walk through how you see the current discussion in D.C. and what you're working on these days to kind of bring it back to reality. Sure. And and just to first put an exclamation point on, on what you just said. Look, Louisiana has the top offshore energy industry in the nation by far, and we have the top commercial seafood production in the continental United States by far. I mean, just proving you, you yep. can actually – you can actually do both. But uh, so so this is LABI. You represent a lot of the employers across the state of Louisiana, a lot of the workforce across the state of Louisiana. And, and those people that are in business, they recognize that if I'm going to develop a business plan, if I'm going to develop a strategy, I do it based upon my strengths. I do it based upon my assets, my resources. So let's take a look at Louisiana. What what strengths, what assets, what resources do we have? And and one of the things that we have, in addition to one of the most productive workforces in America, which isn't gratuitous, that's a, that's a real statistic. We, we have one of the most productive value-added workforces in the nation, is we have a lot of natural resources. And so part of our business plan, part of our strategy should be based on those resources. We have oil, we have gas, we have all of the, 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 the fisheries, we have this river system with this incredible capacity to transport things around the world. So, so what does our business plan look like? You know, if we were, uh, if you were the CEO of a company and you've got to develop it, what does it look like? And, it, and it's, it's a business plan that's based on many of those resources. And so, unfortunately, what you've seen out of Washington over the past few months has been this anti-U.S. energy strategy. You know, oh, we're going to move in this direction of solar. Well, who makes 90% of the solar panels? China does. Right. Uh, it's going to depend on batteries because solar and wind are intermittent energy sources, so you got to be able to store it. Who has uh, 80 to 90% of all the strategic minerals and, and metals cornered around the world? China does. So, so look, do you want to create jobs in China? Or do you want to create them in Louisiana? And, and my answer all day long is right here at home. So, so what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that our energy future, that our economy is based upon our assets and strengths, which is why we have been pushing back on 
on the Biden administration's efforts to try to get rid of all oil and gas production, to stop uh, the production, to prevent new production, all of these policies that we've seen and executive orders we've seen carried out over the past few months, it's resulting in. I mean, I know that just a few months ago I was paying well below a dollar a gallon for gas, and right now it's around 255 260 a gallon. Right. That's a direct result of, of these energy policies, these climate policies coming out of the administration, and it, it hits every pocketbook in America. And, of course, those that are making less money and lost their jobs, it hits them disproportionately. So we have really been spending a lot of time on pushing back and helping to uh, advocate for a more rational energy policy while also spending a good bit of time on infrastructure to make sure that we take advantage of having the river, of having the interstates, the railroads, and all the things we do here to where we can be the center intermodal hub for the United States and for international trade. So for those who grew up in Louisiana, that's very sensible, sensible stuff. We get that. We live here. We know what the Energy Coast is all about. In D.C., obviously, that's not always the real-world argument. But how, how is it such a, a misperception in D.C. that if we truly are concerned about the climate, what we have to do is shut down American energy? Because if you think about it, I mean, you know, production offshore in Gulf of Mexico is some of the cleanest production we have. You put it in a pipeline, it's a very clean way to distribute it. And if we shut that down, we're sending it overseas to countries who don't have the safeguards we have, don't have the regulations, don't have the ingenuity and the know-how and the R&D that we have. Is there any knowledge picking up in D.C. that, hey, wait a minute, we might actually be doing a disservice to the climate by sending energy production overseas, or is it still difficult to get people to view it realistically? You know, Wags, uh, you, you see people that often thrive when they're, when they're in their wheelhouse and they're in areas where they have some experience. And let's think about it for just a minute. And look, I'm not, I'm not just, just bashing people, but you've got a president from Delaware, you've got a, a vice president from California, you've got the head climate guy, John Kerry, from Massachusetts. None of these are energy-producing states. Right. And I remember years ago when, when I was working for – uh, for Billy Tozan, we calculated that uh, the state of Massachusetts consumed 65 times more energy than they produced. And so th- this wasn't something that they understood, and it wasn't something that directed directly affected their jobs. And so I think there is a huge gap in terms of information, in terms of knowledge. I think they're making irresponsible decisions that they don't fully appreciate. Let me give you a quick example. We had climate bills that came up uh, energy and climate bills that came up in our Natural Resources Committee just last week. And they were trying to, of course, gut uh, oil and gas production. So I offered very simple amendments. I said, okay, we'll accept your bill and it will take effect if it actually results in a global decrease in emissions. <laughs> okay? I mean, you sit there, well, look, it's a climate bill. Well, that's the state of goal, I mean, correct? Yeah, I right. mean, this should, this should be a no-brainer. Yeah. Do you know that, that all of the Democrats in the committee opposed my amendment? I mean, it's what, what was the stated rationale? It, well, was there one, or just like no, 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 no. There's, yeah. there's no rationale. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 the, but what this does is it really pulls back that veil and demonstrates that that they actually realize they're beginning to realize that um, that that the policies they're carrying out that are that are at least on the facade designed to help create this clean energy future are actually going to result in the opposite. Meaning, we're going to have greater global emissions. We're going to have higher energy prices that are disproportionately going to impact the poor. We're going to obviously create new jobs, but in China versus in the United States and specifically in Louisiana. So you're, you're not achieving anything. You're actually threatening your national security because with China cornering the market on all these renewable technologies, um, what you end up doing is you make yourself susceptible to their whims, which is not in U.S. interest at in any way. 
And so um, you're beginning to see some folks recognizing it, but, but, but I mean, it just goes to show you that here they have a climate or an energy, a clean energy bill that, that they refuse to uh, accept an amendment that says this has to result in lower emissions. Crazy, crazy. So, okay, so let's talk about another topic that's coming up, and it's kind of timely this week because the president is coming down this week to talk about infrastructure. And look, uh, over the years, you've been a strong voice on infrastructure. You've you know, tried to make everything, every opportunity you've had to kind of make moving on that Baton Rouge Bridge, you've done it. You've looked at other projects there. Um, obviously, it's a huge price tag on, on, the, on the bill he's put out there. It's a lot more stuff beyond infrastructure in there. Give me your flavor on what the infrastructure package looks like and what your goals are as far as refining that thing as it goes through Congress? Well, first of all, I think that um, in, in anything that you do, you got to kind of define your objectives. And I think that the White House has done a poor job in this case at defining what the federal role in infrastructure is. What, what, what is their role versus the role of a state, a local government, a community, a, a family? And, and they've really muddied those waters and kind of said that the federal government's job is everything. And, of course, along with this liberal definition of infrastructure comes tax increases. And, and I had a and, – and, and I want to say I really appreciate the president reaching out to me. He asked to meet to talk about infrastructure. Our 30-minute meeting turned into two hours with both him and uh, Vice President Harris. Uh, we followed up and had a 45-minute phone call like a week later. And so I really do appreciate the engagement. But let me, let me say it again. You can't have a liberal or an expansive – definition of infrastructure, where you just add the word infrastructure to every other program you want, and it suddenly magically becomes infrastructure. And let me say it again, you're going to tax, you're going to increase taxes to achieve it. In the meeting with the president, he said, well, look, this is going to help us secure our place as the leader in the 21st century. Well, any benefit you get from expanded or, or increased investment in infrastructure is going to be lost by raising taxes. This is a global market. We've got to be able to compete globally. Look at what happened after the tax bill we did in December of 2017. Largest investment in history of foreign dollars coming into the United States. Largest um, receipt of tax revenues in the history of the United States. And I think it was April of that year, just a few months after it became law. So, so this recognized that our tax code was previously uncompetitive. This helped to address, uh, sort of modernize our tax code for, for this global co uh, competition we're in right now. And it resulted in U.S. getting jobs, getting investment, lowest employment in U.S. history in many categories. Uh, yet, in this case, they're trying to, 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 to lose or, or cause us to no longer have that level playing field. And so, you know, you have to keep in mind we're cutting $1,400 checks to prisoners. We're cutting $1,400 checks to illegal aliens, to citizens of other countries. And then they're going to come and say, we got to raise taxes because we don't have enough money for infrastructure? Wow. No. So, so we're pushing them to, to be tighter on their definition of infrastructure. Roads and bridges, uh, flood protection that have regional consequences, things like rivers and, and other uh, uh, infrastructure that, 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 that is, uh, it crosses various states, uh, and I think even the federal government has a responsibility in restoring the coast of Louisiana, and we've been pushing for for those things. But but you got to stay in your lane. You got to have a tight definition, and uh, that's really what we're pushing. And then the other component that's so important is that we have seen at least a tripling of the amount of time it takes to go from project idea 
to just initiating construction, tripling. And of course, it's and not you just have, time, you have it's hit dollars. this topic hard. And I think it, I want to make sure everyone understands this at home because you've been really strong on this front where as far as any federal project, whether it be through the Corps or on our coast or whatever, the approval process, I guess, whether through it's NEPA or anything else, just the time it takes to get that approval, sometimes by the time it comes through, it's either no longer relevant or not nearly as relevant as it once was, and you can't build a railroad like that. G- give a little bit more depth so people understand exactly what you're trying to change. Sure, there. sure. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, two, two different examples. First of all, in a coastal restoration project, the objective of the project is trying to restore the environment. Yet you're doing an environmental review that's going to take, and, and on average, it, 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 it takes somewhere around five to nine years during that entire time, your environment is degrading. Right. I mean, this is it's, it's counterintuitive. And no one's trying to avoid the reviews. It's just a matter of like, hey, let's get to it. Let's get the information. We've got to fix something. Let's fix it. Let's just get to the project at hand, right? Absolutely. And what most people don't appreciate is that the majority of projects carried out across America today don't actually have to do that type of environmental analysis. It's only when the first dollar of federal money is invested in a project when this federal National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, kicks in. And and just to be clear, the law dates back to the 1970s, yet just in the recent decades, we've seen a tripling in the amount of time it's taken to go from project concept to project initiation, actual construction initiation. And it's not just time. I'll say it again. It's money. And the other example is, is roads, for example. The average road project today takes seven years of environmental review. The average road project for actual construction takes probably around 18 months. I mean, this is crazy. And you're spending that much more money on all of these pre-construction activities that really don't have anything to do with protecting the environment. They've added all of these through policy, added all of these these, uh, irrelevant things to the process that just bogs it down and prevents you from ever realizing the benefit of a project, which is completion. So let's go a little crystal ball time, okay? Crystal ball with Garrett. We'll call this our new podcast next time. Uh, let's say fast forward six months from now, or maybe eight months from now, towards the end of the year, where we're talking, okay, here's what happened in 2021 in Washington. And let's focus on infrastructure. Do you think a bill gets done? And do you think maybe the tax increases that are being floated out right now by the Biden administration are a piece of it? Or do you what, what do you think happens with all of that stuff that's been thrown on the table up there? So do I think a tax increase has to happen? No. I think we get an infrastructure bill. Um, I think that if they are willing to have a bipartisan discussion, I think we can show through just the efficiency of developing, delivering projects, we can actually build twice as many projects as we're building today with the same money, which would avert or prevent the the need for us to do all these crazy tax increases that they're talking about. Uh, Some of the things that we need to do, we need to, uh, the the, the highway program is paid for through a user fee, through gasoline tax, electric vehicles or freeloaders, hybrid vehicles are getting a discount because they're not paying the, the requisite user fee. So I think we can bring some of those funds to the table. I think that we can get a bill done in a bipartisan way that will truly advance some of our huge infrastructure uh, priorities like restoring the coast, like flood protection, like a new bridge crossing the Mississippi River. Uh, the other alternative, as they just did in this COVID-ish package that, that they passed a few months ago, is if they try and go straight unilateral, they will shove a tax increase through. They will shove a death tax or inheritance tax through capital gains tax through. And I think it will compromise uh, America, the American workforce's 
level playing field that we're able to compete and win in a global market and uh, really undermine our economy and, and cause inflation to increase. So you think there's a decent chance they're going to be able to use reconciliation to kind of jam some of that through? So that's the only way that they can jam the tax increases through is through a reconciliation, which would be a straight partisan bill, as we saw in that COVID-ish package. Yeah. And, um, and I think that if they can't if we can't work out a bipartisan bill or if they decide just to go straight partisan, that's what they'll do. But, but I don't think that's necessary. I think we can have a rational discussion and get a bill done in a bipartisan way. Well, glad you're at the table for that, no doubt. Uh, one quick thing before, before we sign out of here. Um, you're a 25-hour day, day type of a day week type of guy. You work your tail off, and for those of you who don't know, his wife, Carissa, she is a rock star in her own right. I work with her somewhere in a nonprofit here in town. She is fantastic. Y'all are a go, go, go type of family. What do you do for downtime, dude? Like, when, when do you, like, unplug the batteries and just kick the feet up and say, all right, this is chill day at the Graves household? Talk, what, what's that look like for you all? Yeah, we go running. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's not chill, man. <laughs> no, you know, you know what we started doing? Uh, Chris and I just uh, a few months ago, we started, uh, we started going on walks. So we do, like, a four-mile loop, and, um, and, and we sit there and talk about everything. We, we talk about schedule for the week. We talk about what's going on with the kids. We talk about what's going on in our lives. I'm telling you, the best thing ever. Um, we, we, uh, we started doing that. That's our downtime. That's our therapy, and, uh, and, and it's worked out really well. Sounds like the kids probably get some downtime, too. Cool. Mom and dad are on their walk. We got time to ourselves for a little bit. That's awesome. Well, cool, man. Look, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for everything you do, man. From from the day I've really known you, you've done nothing but bust your butt for Louisiana. I really appreciate you Thank doing you. that. So um, come join us again next time, and uh, thanks Love for going, uh, what you do in D.C. Hey, thanks. All right, that was Con- uh, Congressman Garrett Graves from the Baton Rouge area here joining us. And uh, tune in next time, about six to eight months from now, when he comes back, and we'll see how his crystal ball turned out.